everyone and welcome back to a woman's place podcast um today we have a very special guest with us um on our podcast um his name is dr joseph trachtman um he's an od uh up top up up i'm actually terrible at pronouncing the word optometrist is that how you say it optometrist too many too many um vowels uh, for me, PhD, and is one of approximately 60 optometrists worldwide who has earned the status of FCOVD-A and one of few in the private practice with his, this distinction. Could you let us know what the what FCOVD-A is? Sure. <laughs> What's that? Okay, the organization is known as the College of Optometrists in Vision Development. Okay. And the F in front of it means the board certification. Okay. So the board certification is in vision therapy and vision development. Okay. And the A means academic, which means um, that you've had to have uh, 10 publications in the scientific or professional literature on the topic of vision therapy. And there were some other qualifications, and then there, there was an interview. Okay, okay. So it's and one of only sixty worldwide. Wow, it's a very prestigious. Um, yeah, most yeah. There's thousands of fellows, but they um, are they get questioned about uh, certain procedures for certain conditions. Mm. But the, the academic fellows um, are. About, beyond that because they're publishing right. their works rather than just what they do in the office. I see, it's I been see. Peer, it's been peer reviewed. I see, I see, yes, okay. Um, Dr. Trotman is internationally renowned for his work offering uh, visual rehabilitation, neurofeedback for vision and optometric, optometric <laughs> vision therapy. His education is from Pennsylvania College of Optometry Comprehensive uh, clinical internship from uh, the optomic optometric <laughs> center of I'm telling you there's too many vowels from my Irish mouth um, center of New York residency he did a residency in vision and uh, child de- development in optom optomet- optometric center of New York a master's of education is at the MED is that correct yes from the John Hopkins University, University, Masters of Science from State College of Optometry. Said it right that time from the State yeah, University. Doing better. <laughs> doing better. I swear I tried to practice and I was like, uh. from the State University of New York, PhD in experimental psychology from Yeshiva University, um, National Library of Medicine, postdoctoral fellowship in computers and medicine from the, uh, the uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, Medical School of the City University of New York, uh, Certificate in Virtual Worlds from the University of Washington. As well as being a pioneer in sports vision, he is a world expert in biofeedback applications for vision problems. Could you talk to us a little bit about, I read that you um, became interested in in uh, vision training since you were seven, seven years of age. How did, what drew you to this profession? Um, yeah, what drew you to optometry of all things at seven? Okay, well, when I was seven, my older brother, 
was 11, mm-hmm. and he had a lazy eye, mm-hmm. and the optometrist gave him vision training, and his vision improved. Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> the, uh, the additional background to that is that when my father, a blessed memory, was about five, six years old, he had polio that affected the whole left side of his body. Mm. And we have a picture of him with his uh, parents and his two brothers. And and he, he he's standing like this, just the okay. whole side was. Well, he, he did an incredible amount of exercise. And in 1939, he scored 100% on the New York City Fire Department physical. Wow. Which at that time was an incredibly uh, difficult mm-hmm. task. For example, you had to put a 150-pound sack on your shoulders and climb over walls and run upstairs and all kinds of stuff. Right. So after, after so he reco- <clears throat> recovered from polio and was able to... He was completely rehabilitated. Wow. Wow. So, so I, grew, I grew up knowing that even if you have a physical disability, there's ways to improve function. Right. When I was in high school, um, my, my brother uh, was already, uh, had graduated from the uh, New York State Maritime College and he was a third mate in the Merchant Marine and he was making quite a bit of money at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, what are you gonna do now when you finish high school? He says, well, I wanna be an optometrist. He says, why don't you become a medical doctor? He said, I don't wanna be a medical doctor. He said, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for your medical school. There won't be any trouble. He said, no, I don't wanna prescribe medicine and I don't wanna do surgery. I want to heal people naturally. Right. And has there been, and like you've done work with people with with who have had vision problems, say like myself, so quite a significant um, blur eye of short sightedness. You have you work with people in different fields <clears throat> to improve their vision. Yes. Yeah, and some I saw some of those people were like pilots and um, sports. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your your work with NASA. I saw that you. When I was at Johns Hopkins, um, I was introduced to the concept of biofeedback. Mm -hmm. Which which is, what is biofeedback? Biofeedback is supplying the body with information about a function or process that we're not normally aware of. For example, if we were going to measure finger temperature, not in tenths of a degree like the usual thermometer, Mm-hmm. But in thousandth or one ten thousandth of a degree, you could learn how to control your finger temperature fairly quickly. Because you're getting very small changes that were amplified either by a sound or a light display, and you can learn how to control those functions. When I was a graduate student at the um, State University of New York uh, College of Optometry, we went to visit someone at uh, Rockefeller uh, University because the uh, pioneer in scientific biofeedback was there, Neil Miller. And we went to, to visit him in, uh, in his lab. And we walk into the room 
and there's someone sitting in a chair and there's two buckets on either side. One hand's in ice water and the other hand is in very hot water. Mm-hmm. And on by the buckets, there's a, a, a big tower display showing the temperature. And he was able to make the temperature the same with both hands. Wow. Have you, have you, do you read any about um, Wim Hof and his breathing, the, the Wim Hof method, the breathing? The, the breathing um, method that uh, I usually suggest for my patients, which I do, is um, called The Science of Breath by Yogi Ramachaka. Okay. So, and, and, it's probably similar to mm. just learning how to do diaphragm breathing and fill up your lower stomach and, and then yes. the lungs yeah. and then the upper lungs. Yeah. And how do you explain that? Like what, what is going on that they can control the temperature? Like what is the, bio, like what's happening in their body? Biofeedback is primarily a subconscious process. Okay. So the, the less I tell people, the better they do. <laughs> and for example, if you go on a bicycle and someone tells you, um, make sure you check the tension in your wrist and your knees and your ankles and how your feet feel. As you're riding, you would ride about a block or so and say, this is the worst thing in the world. You see, this isn't fun at all. Mm. But if your parents tell you, Here's a new bicycle. You get on it and just pedal and you'll be fine. And I'll hold you for a little while till you learn how to get your balance. And you don't think about doing anything. You just do it. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking too much about what you're doing, you can't do biofeedback. Okay. It's much like a Zen meditation. That in, or more popularly, that when uh, Luke Skywalker, his spacecraft, went into the the pond and he, he wanted to get it out he looked at master yoda master yoda and he said master yoda said look take it out he said i'll try master yoda says do or do not there is no try you just do it and so because the process the introduction of the we would commonly call it now i suppose in, in the online space people talk about ego would interrupts the subconsciousness or the consciousness kind of interrupts the subconscious process is that what's happening mm-hmm. mm. right because you're like too co- concentrated on the little bits that's very um so what what actually how i found your work was because i was um really interested in in, uh, in an, an idea that i had had um about the connection between vision and PTSD and I went searching on the internet and I came across your paper that's on your website and um, I was absolutely astounded and and really really interested by what was happening. Um, I would just like to talk to you a little bit about that. The so in, in the paper that you have on your website, which is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and vision uh, from 2010, um, it, it creates this connection or it demonstrates the connection between PTSD or trauma, uh, specifically PTSD in veterans from war zones and vision or blurry vision and vision, vision loss. 
can you in 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 your research is it just that specific type of trauma which is which is what other types of trauma or how would you define trauma oh, um I'll, I'll answer your question but there should be some background information first perfect the, the uh, companion paper to the PTSD paper was vision and the hypothalamus right and that was published a few months before the PTSD a deep paper on purpose to introduce uh, the concepts that are involved in PTSD in the hypothalamus mm -hmm. paper. So um, just to show that's the brain. Yeah. That's the brain and the hypothalamus is right in the center of the brain. You see? Right. It's like the okay. Yeah. Okay. Is it the green one or is it the big gray area? It, well, it, it's the, I guess it looks green to you, but it, it's, yeah. it's bluish green. Okay. Yeah. And here is a big picture of it. Okay. So it has many different structures. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> Just to give you some idea of all the different things that the hypothalamus does, here's a chart that shows the different structures of the hypothalamus and what functions they mm -hmm. control. And this goes on for pages. Right. That's a, is that a very primitive part of your brain? Um, I don't use that terminology. Okay. Um, it, it's it's an essential part of the brain because mm -hmm. it controls um, several dozen several dozen functions, like the immune system, the emotions, vision, the retina, blood pressure, body temperature, heart rate, hunger, thirst, and sex drives. The chemicals in the brain called the neurotransmitters yeah wow nitric oxide uh, functions and and many other functions mm -hmm. and the, the way the hypothalamus works is that if one function isn't working properly one or more won't work properly right yeah but conversely if you can get one or more working, working. properly you can help reset the others Mm. Also, uh, the, the brain waves and the neuropolypeptides, and um, I forgot to uh, to put a uh, the chart on <clears throat> on my iPad to show you. But I think people get the idea that it controls everything. So this is how I understand PTSD to work. Okay. And it's explained by um, a book written by someone named Ashen, A-H-S-E-N, called Eidetic Imagery. Now, what is an eidetic image? It's a child, childhood memory, for example, 
that's charged with emotion. Mm -hmm. So someone may remember a certain birthday party or a certain incident that happened that was very joyful. And they can remember all the details, although they may not remember what they had for breakfast yesterday. They can mm -hmm. remember all the details of that because it's an image charged with an emotion. Mm -hmm. And one of its most effective uses is in uh, suicide prevention for, as short-term therapy. What the therapist will do is take the patient back to right before they were going to commit the suicide or, or have that very bad thought and then change the whole picture change the outcome of it and rehearse that go over and over in their mind. So when they get to think about the suicide, they don't get that bad feeling anymore. They get another feeling. And um, one of my patients, Jack Kirschenbaum, uh, who, who did uh, this short-term therapy on adolescent suicide people, and he said it's very effective. So, <clears throat> When PTSD started to become a popular term, mm -hmm. I, um, I started to investigate it, particularly, as you mentioned, much of the literature is in reference to military. Mm -hmm. I was in the US Army on active duty from 1970 to 1972. Mm -hmm. And during that time was the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. I had uh, my own clinic in the, in the hospital, I had the optometry clinic, and I saw over 10,000 military people. Um, almost everyone who came back from Vietnam had something. We didn't know it was PTSD then, but there was something. And they would yeah. tell me these stories that, that, that would haunt them. As I started to explore uh, the PTSD more, I saw you know, all these relationships started to come together. And it led me to this conclusion, which I still have, that the PTSD is an incident, something that happens, or could be a combination of incidents that happen. Mm -hmm they get charged with some kind of an emotion, whether it's fear or anxiety or happiness, whatever. And almost anything can trigger that off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For example, for soldiers, a loud noise uh, mm -hmm. could, could set it off. Mm -hmm. So what we commonly know now as triggers, like people have triggers, in their environment that might look like the situation or it, it triggers the nervous system into saying this situation is like that situation and it triggers the PTSD. Exactly. Would that right. be fair, yeah. So one of the books that I read when I was researching the paper mm -hmm. was this Battle book. Battle for the Mind by William Sargant. Yes. 
And in it, he describes his experience as uh, a medical doctor during World War I and World War II. And what he was doing was giving people brain-blocking drugs or alcohol Mm -hmm. to prevent the cycling of the PTSD. Right, yeah. It kind of reminds me, this is probably unrelated, but it kind of reminds me of when they, you know, when you're having epileptic fits and they cut the, they cut, cut your brain into to stop it from accumulating energy essentially um so they were using alcohol and other neural blockers neurotransmitter blockers okay the other thing uh, that he cites in here and he cites it from sigmund freud and although my uh, degree is in experimental psychology i took quite a number of courses in in clinical psychology. So I'm quite familiar with a lot of Freud's and other uh, psychoanalyst work. And Freud called it with his uh, colleague Breuer, they wrote a paper and they call it AB reaction, A-B-R-E-A-C-T-I-O-N. And what they define it as that if someone has a, a traumatic incident that if you could get them to talk about it, to get it out of the subconscious into consciousness, it will gradually go away. Mm-hmm. What I have found with, I'll get to the answer of your question. No, no, not at all. In a roundabout way. <laughs> no, we need all this background info for sure. I started doing um, biofeedback to reduce nearsightedness in 1975. And what I found was, or noticed, was that patients who were about four units nearsighted, or more, four to, usually four to six units nearsighted. Which is, which is that... They could only see the very big E on mm-hmm. the eye chart at maybe five or 10 feet from the chart. That most of them became nearsighted and they remembered when they became nearsighted when their family moved from one location to another and they changed schools. So they, they lost their friends and, and had to make new friends if they could. Mm-hmm. And that one patient in particular, he remembered the exact day. So I remember my mother told me that we were going to move. And then? And after that, my vision just became worse fine. and worse and worse. Well, it's very, it's very interesting you say that. And this is why I was searching is that I, I remember the day that I became nearsighted. I was playing a game of Gaelic football. And I was sandwiched in the hedge from both sides and I fell unconscious and I was about 14 and I never needed glasses before this. And then after gradually I started needing glasses Um, and it's always been something my father has always said. He's just like, 
she never needed glasses until she was knocked out in that game. And um, it was all, like, you know, so I, I've just bit that's what that's what led me to doing the search, you know, and what I suspected. Obviously, we don't have concrete proof of that, but it's always been a thing that has been said. So that's so I'll give you an example and then comment more on what you told me mm-hmm. in the in the office when we would be doing the training, when people got to a certain level of skill, I would put music on uh in the office and when I did it with one patient and he became very uh, anxious about it. So I, I, he said, could you turn it off? I said, sure. And then he told me that when he was a young boy, his parents would argue all the time, screaming, yelling at each other. And he would get very close to the television set and turn the volume up so he couldn't hear them. And, right. and he became nearsighted. <laughs> so what, what he was doing is, psychologically, he was blocking out seeing anything other mm-hmm. than what's close to him here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that subconsciously, you were blocking out the memory of that incident by just pulling yourself in and not being involved with what's outside of you. Yeah, it's it's because I was also uh, not to get too into personal story, but it was just the the journey that led me to like I was really 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 badly bullied in school growing up in primary school and secondary school, and this this thought has just been ruminating in my head as well about how my retreat inwards as a as a teenager to like escape the bullying. I said I and I even have a message that I sent to my sister not two months ago. And I said, I wonder if if my vision was also a part of that retreat inwards to like escape, because I remember saying when I got glasses, I hated it because I could see how other people were looking at me. (laughs) So I used to not wear my glasses in school because I preferred to have blurry vision. And then I, I could I all I needed was this much distance it was about it's about a foot two feet and i can't see people's features after it's, that it's it's a um defense mechanism <gasps> wow I, I, i'm going to tell you a funny story and then i'll tell you a, a very interesting story and it's related okay. to ireland actually okay we love hearing about <clears throat> ireland in ireland so in in <laughs> undergraduate school um i played intramural uh soccer what you would call football mm-hmm. and um during one game, I, I played uh, inside, left. Okay. Next to the center. Okay. And played next to him. I was a very fast runner. Mm-hmm. And um, I was running down the field. And the next thing I knew, I was flat on my back. And what happened is one of the fullbacks, who was a, a giant, it was like six foot four, six foot five, weighed over 300 pounds. And he was stationary, so I didn't notice him in, in my periphery because I was mm. looking this Straight way towards, towards the center. Yeah. Because that's where the ball action was. And I ran right into the sky. <laughs> and I just, and I just, Bang. Just like running into a padded wall. Yeah. Ran into him and then fell back. And um, the 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 coach was also the wrestling coach and I was on the wrestling team. Okay. 
and he just had the biggest laugh. <laughs> Trying to take him out, poor guy. <laughs> no, and, and the guy that I ran into, he apologized. That, that, you know, did I hurt you? Did I do it? I said, no, yeah. no, <laughs> he no. just ran into you. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There must have been some size. At that time, I only weighed about 130 pounds, so he hardly even felt it. I mean, he didn't yeah. budge. <laughs> So now the Ireland story. Mm. Yeah, um, when I had my office in Brooklyn before uh, we moved to Seattle, I had a separate room uh, for the training. And I had a therapist who would train most of the patients because at that time I was traveling and lecturing a lot. <clears throat> and um, so the therapist was there so patients wouldn't their weekly treatments. So one day she's training one of the patients and I hear from my examination room, hysterical crying. So I walk over and I ask the therapist, what happened? She says, I have no idea. I have no idea what happened. And this is what happened. The, the patient, she was in her thirties and uh, she was in that same range between four and, and six units nearsighted. Mm -hmm. And we were gradually reducing her, her nearsightedness. And she had been referred to us by her psychiatrist because he could not get any further in his therapy with her and thought there was something related to her vision. Mm -hmm. So uh, once we were able to get her to calm down, this is the story that she told us. Her, her mother was from Ireland. Mm -hmm. And one day her mother said to her and her, her brother, uh, let's go back to Ireland. I want to show you the town that I came from. So, so they went, the three of them, and um, they were in the town. And they went to the, there was a convent uh, nearby. Mm -hmm. They went to the convent and the mother said to the, this patient, who then was a young girl, maybe uh, like 10, 11 years old, maybe a little younger said, you stay here with the nuns and you have lunch with them. My brother and I are going to go into town and do some shopping. And then after shopping, we'll come back and get you. The mother never came back. They abandoned her. And she said, once she realized that she didn't want to see anything anymore and she became nearsighted. And that point in the training got to that subconscious memory all the psychotherapy before it never got to it, but it was, it was locked in with her vision. Those are called the Magdalene laundries. Say again? The Magdalene laundries. In Ireland, they, they didn't close until like 1997. I'm not sure I understand. They're called the Magdalene laundries. They were basically prisons for women. And girls, uh -huh. that is that. How traumatic she came from. She came from America. Did you say that they were in America first? Came all the way to Ireland to be abandoned in a in a strange place. That is hugely emotionally. Oh my god! And so she retreated inwards as well. Wow. And and then you, did you treat her then for her near nearsightedness? Once she realized why she was nearsighted, 
you know, then it was easier for the psychiatrist to work with her and it was easier for us to work with her. Mm. Um, needless to say, she still had a lot of other mm. emotional problems that got associated with that because mm. you know, she, you know, she'd been suffering with it for over 20 years. Mm. So it got into, into her whole body more or less. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting you talking about when you said earlier, you know, when you work on one area, it works on them all, you know, and that that is one aspect of, you know, even with sport or or your your mental health, you know, if you start cleaning your room, your house will, you know, you'll start dressing better. If you start dressing better, your house, you know, these things are all related and like they, it, it is, it is a, it's all all so connected, I suppose, a very hostile hostile approach. And I, I know in your in your paper, you refer to how optometrists that they should be trained in how to identify trauma, um, identify that it, that blurry vision that you, more than just you know psychologists or or counselors that actually you know medical doctors and eye doctors and probably other doctors or, or medical professionals can be trained into uh, identifying um probably dentists you know I don't know anything about dentistry but I was actually thinking about this recently and I'm that'll be my next one now I'll have to find out a teeth are related to trauma um so so you it's not vision impaired so is it is it vision impaired vision loss you're treating or are you treating PTSD I guess okay. So let me, I found the chart. I want to show the chart first. Okay. Functions of the immune system. Oh, this is for the amygdala, is it? These are all the functions. These are some of the functions of the hypothalamus. For the hypothalamus, excuse me. It controls it's all these things. Retina, focusing, luxury, energy, stress, memory, posture, heart rate, peptides, sex drives, okay, hunger, thirst. Probably for the system. Wow. Okay. So I think you answered your own question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the vision is in the whole body. For example, there have been studies in, in Scandinavia in the late 18, uh, 1980s, and they found that the muscles in the face head, neck, and shoulders are all interdependent with the focusing muscle. So okay. many patients, many patients who are nearsighted have a TMJ. What's ETMJ? TMJ is tension in the in the jaw that they grind their teeth at night. Okay have shoulder, have upper back and shoulder pain. So that's, that, those are all connected to the ability to focus the eye. Okay. Um, some patients, it's even more dramatic. Some of the patients will feel uh, a general wave of relaxation and, and their face will get flushed. When we're training the right eye, you'll see the, the right side get flushed. When mm -hmm. training the left side, we'll see the left side get flushed. 
Some patients will feel it in their shoulders. Some will feel it in their back. Some will even feel it further down. Some um, physical therapists have bought the training instrument just to get their, their clients to be able to uh, move better and to relieve some of the tension that they have in the places that have had trauma. But we're getting to those places through the vision system. Okay, so you're not, when, if someone came with like a pain in their back, you know, they were like reporting pain in the back, you'd be treating the, it through the eye rather than at the muscle. So I'll tell you what, an interesting story about this. Okay. When I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship at Mount Sinai Medical School, uh, I became very friendly with a, a, a Russian trained sports medicine specialist. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In fact, he was a master of samba. Samba is a, 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 a Russian martial art. I thought he you said a, zumba. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah. but he, he, was, he was a master of that. And when we would go into the Russian neighborhoods, they all knew, they all knew him, not from being a doctor, but from, from his athletic abilities. Okay. He had to transfer. He had to, you know, take courses to be able to get a license here in in the United States. Mm-hmm. So he took all the courses and um, <clears throat> got his license. And says to me, oh, "I'm going to office open an office on Central Park around Central Park." So I said to said to him, "That's some of the most expensive real estate in the whole city. How do you expect to get patients?" Oh, they just come to me. I said, no, you're not in Russia anymore where the government's going to send you patients because they know who you are. In America, nobody knows who you are. They're not going to come. He says, I have some extra space in my office. Come and use the space. I'm not going to charge you anything. And this way you could build up your clientele and then you could go around to office someplace once you have some income coming in. He said, but you're not going to have money for insurance or for rent or anything until people start coming to you. So he agreed. So one time he comes in into the office, he sees him training a patient and he comes over and he presses on a shiatsu point in the shoulder blades and the focusing muscle relaxes just like that. Then we do the other eye, press at the point, goes way up. So we would have a contest that he would send me his patients who had shoulder pain. And by seeing which eye was more tense, I could tell which side had more tension in the back. And then, and he would send me, and I would send him patients. And and so that's how uh, we actually found, uh, he was also trained in China on acupuncture and acupressure. So he was very familiar with those energy meridians. Mm. And so he taught me a bit about them as well. And and it and it's in it it's in it's in the whole body. And it 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 it, it what came to mind as you were telling that story was that of course when you're in a state of fear, right? Or attraction or whatever your eye expands or it, it, it 
dilates? Which one is the dilation? Is the dilation the expansion? Yes. So and that like that of course is connected. Like your muscles will also say if you're in fear, your muscles will tighten and your eye will tighten. Or that's very. I never made that connection between the eye, like uh, what feedback it's been. It's 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 offering the it's offering the body, and so. And so, what's the process then when you're when you're treat when you're treating? Patients? This is this is what we do. Um, I'm a, a volunteer for a program called Homecoming for Veterans. Mm -hmm. So I give uh, veterans who have PTSD ten free training sessions mm -hmm. uh, because I have great sympathy for veterans uh, having taken care of so many of them. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was on active duty. And the first thing I do is, is um, ask them if they remember any incident where they, uh, that would give them the PTSD. Some of them remember and some don't. So what I do, and I did following uh, Lugoya and Freud's uh, philosophy of that ab reaction, um, I just start talking about my experience in the army and then they start telling me their stories and sooner or later they tell me the whole story. Everything all comes out. I had a patient who was a, uh, a psychiatrist, psychologist at the, uh, um, Fort Lewis, which is uh, about an hour or so from Seattle South. Mm -hmm. and, and she works with soldiers who have PTSD and they won't talk to her. So she can't get, she can't get them to talk about what happened. Mm -hmm. But because they feel comfortable talking to another veteran, it all comes out. I'll give you a very dramatic example. I had one patient, he was a very, very big guy. He was almost six foot five, weighed over 300 pounds and he wasn't fat. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, do you remember any PTSD incident? No, no, nothing bothers me. No, I mean. So this is the story he tells me. They, they were in Iraq and the, the mortars were being fired at their bunker. And one of them hit, it was a direct hit and knocked him off his feet, this big guy off his feet. And when he got up, he saw blood all over the place. So that was his PTSD, but he wouldn't acknowledge, you know, it. Yeah. But, but once it came out, <clears throat> and then we were able to do the training. And what we do is <clears throat> we tell them to recall the PTSD incident. So, for example, this incident. And remember the feeling or feelings that you had and substitute the relaxation feeling of the biofeedback training. With the bad feeling. And because they have been struggling with it, this seems to be the missing piece of the puzzle that they now know what to do when that it starts to come on. They can just replace and get the nice, calm, relaxed feeling, mm -hmm. and then they control it themselves. And with these. These are people that you're treating for PTSD or 
they come to you with vision problems. You, you... The soldiers come because they've been referred for PTSD. Right. Okay. Okay. So it's kind of like a it's kind of a roundabout way, <laughs> a roundabout way of you know, because when you first hear it, of course, you're thinking, oh, you're 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 dealing with eyes, you're dealing with vision, and it's just that's just the that's just the pathway. It's but but the ultimate goal is the PTSD. That is so interesting. That's so interesting and so illuminating and just because you can access the, the hypothalamus, so you can access the emotions. The because <clears throat> there's three pathways from the eye to the hypothalamus that occur at three different stages of retinal processing and go to three different structures in the hypothalamus. Mm. And because of this, we can access the limbic system, which the hypothalamus is a major component, and get into the emotions directly, subconsciously. And when the PTSD is relieved, the vision improves. That is incredible. And I, I, I read in that paper, it said, to demonstrate the strength of the relationship between uh, vision and emotional state is a recent article relating visual impairment to a high risk of suicide. Visual impairment was defined as including visual acuity, contrast and glare sensitivity, visual fields and stereo acuity, acuity, stereo acuity, words. Too many vowels again. The authors suggest that an improvement in vision function may decrease the risk of, of suicide. How many, my, my, my question, would you, because I'm very interested in this podcast in, in addressing systemic issues in our society and in our culture and, and, and how, and how we, um, and how we deal with things, uh, you know, like not to be dealing with symptoms of of poverty, which are sometimes are, you know, um, it can be crime, can be a, a symptom of poverty, and punishing the crime and not going to the source, which is um, maybe something's going on in the home, or maybe there's poverty or an adverse condition, is you know, it's not productive. And I'm very interested in in economics and and poverty as as a, a as childhood or even a, a, an adverse condition that people face. Would you regard poverty as a as a that that would lead something to to cause PTSD? Have you seen in studies that like people from poorer economic situations have have worse vision outcomes than people from I have, I have two answers to that one is that um, nutrition affects uh, our vision right. and everything else and the people who are poor do not have good nutrition mm. I'll give you an example when I was in Brooklyn I was president of the Brooklyn Rotary Club are you mm -hmm. familiar with Rotary I'm familiar Rotary with the um, with the broad uh, concept of it we have one in town here that they set up a tree every christmas yeah. so um 
But one of the members was the um, the coordinator for a local boys and girls group. And it was located in one of the inner city housing projects. Mm -hmm. His name's Steve. So I said, Steve, um, can you get some of the, the um, junior high school students who are having some trouble in school? And I'll train some of the members of the club how to be a therapist. And we'll give them 10 training sessions. And let's see what happens. <coughs> so he said, fine, great. So I gave them an initial uh, eye examination to get some baseline data. Mm -hmm. The members of the club gave them training, and then I reevaluated them. And for most of them, there was little or no change at all. Okay. And, and during the training, I would ask them, you know, what did you have to eat today? Well, I didn't eat breakfast. Uh, there's no food for breakfast. And for, for lunch, I had some uh, potato chips or some, some of this junky crackers or something, uh, very little water. And who knows what they ate for supper. So, the, 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 and on top of that, um, there was a lot of crime in the housing project, a lot mm -hmm. of drug dealing and all kinds of other stuff going on. And, and I just felt bad because we couldn't help them very much. One of my colleagues named Stanley Casino, who's in, uh, San Bernardino, California, in the 1980s started a tremendous project with the Juvenile Detention Center in San Bernardino. Mm -hmm. And he gave hundreds and hundreds of the juvenile delinquents vision therapy. Mm -hmm. And this is reported in, in the Academic Therapy Journal. He found that the rearrest record for those, and then he compared them to 500 just pulling from the files. So they had yeah. a, a- Kind of a control group. Control group. Mm. The re-arrest record for the training group was 16%, one sixth. For the, those who did not receive the training, 60%, six zero. That's incredible. And even now, the new mayor of New York City, Mayor Adams, uh, often says that over 30% of the inmates at Rockies Island, one of the more notorious prisons in New York City, mm -hmm. can't read. Yeah. So it's all, it's all, it's all related. It's all related. It's all related. There's a there's... everything is is all related in our bodies. When you go to a doctor and he says there's no relationship, it means he doesn't know what the relationship yes. is. Yes. But there is a but there is a relationship. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. It, there's actually there's a, a senator of ours in the on the Dáil who's doing a podcast currently, and she's from a working class area in Dublin, and she is. Um, uh, interviewing former inmates, I think are they former inmates or current inmates, and talking about how you know really raising awareness of the of the mental health issues that are associated with offending and reoffending, um, 
and I just think that this this because what you're saying as well is that it can't be solved it's not like a quick fix it doesn't just work on its own it's it's not it's not independent of the environmental factors there there's also care in other areas that needs to be it's like a, I know that we throw out that word word a lot, but holistic approach to these things. Um, and I guess you've blown my mind. I think when I read that paper, I was just like, I think I was just like about four or five times. I was like, what? I was just like, what? I'm going to tell and you I, another story. Please do. So I had a patient. She was seven years old. In her, I think in her right eye, she saw just fine. She could see the small letters on the chart. And the left eye, she was quite farsighted. Mm -hmm. Could hardly even see anything with that eye. So we started giving her training and she, she did okay. After a few sessions, while I was doing the left eye, she sat back and became hysterical. And once, you know, her mother and I could get her to calm down. She said, I remember when I was three or four years old, I fell to my left side. And that I became farsighted to prevent her from seeing the fall trauma. She just blocked it out. So I, subsequently, whenever I have a patient whose one eye is a good eye and the other eye is farsighted, I ask them, if they fall. remember having a fall in childhood, mm. and they all do, except one patient, he, he was farsighted in both eyes. He said he didn't fall to one side, but he remembers falling down the stairs and just rolling oh, over and over. And he was farsighted in both eyes. And I asked the same colleague, uh, Dr. Casino, if, if he's noticed the same. and. Being a very astute clinician, he, he agreed that that he found the same. What was Mr. Casino's first name? Was it Steve? Stanley? Stanley. Stanley Casino has the one of the best American New York names I've ever heard in my life. Stanley Casino. What a great name. Yeah, it's uh, it's K K-A-S-E-N-O. Oh, K-A-S. Oh yeah. He's very cool. He doesn't have the C. Um Wow. I suppose you have thousands of those stories that are just like that demonstrate the different areas where that people have these realizations. Do you find that there is a relationship with, um, say, vision, uh, blurry vision, like nearsightedness and um, bound, people with boundary issues? Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's one of my like I've been in therapy for a few years now and it's a connection that I made that I <clears throat> I had really bad problem with boundaries like like interpersonal boundaries and just you know boundaries in my life and I one of the reasons I was like it's because I was nearsighted that I didn't I'd have to stand so close to people to no, see it's them your, it's your defense mechanism mm. Mm. defense well it was it was I had a lack of boundaries you see I had a lack of boundaries. So it was like I I couldn't I couldn't tell when I was standing too close to somebody. So and and one of the reasons I attributed to it was because I had to stand so close to someone because 
you know, I'd be very close to people's faces. People would be like, oh, um, to actually see them. But it, the relationship, like, I, I suppose what I'm, I'm asking, do you, did you, do you find that would farsighted people have like, you know, would they be more avoidant people or I don't know if my question is very awkward. Yeah, I, have, but. I, have one, I have one patient who, who tr- trying to reduce his farsightedness and he was very resistant mm-hmm. and he, he wasn't a very big person, but his, his arms were very big and very strong. Mm-hmm. And he, he was, it was, it was, uh, an expression of him that when he would talk, he would be going. Pushing away. Pushing away. So like farsightedness to literally keep people at a distance. Like this is as close as I need you to be. Hmm. Often I come across these things in life and I take them down because I'm like, this is an attribute of a character in a book that you would write to demonstrate their kind of personality. It's almost it's almost fictional, you know, in its in its representative, like metaphorical um, meaning. Um, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm not sure if there's anything else. Would you? Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or tell us about about yourself and your practice? You're in Seattle now. Um, you know, we we have a new uh, training instrument. Mm-hmm. And unlike the other ones, this not only gives auditory feedback, but gives visual feedback. Okay. And um, our, our latest program is something like a spinning donut. Okay. And by relaxing your vision and concentrating, it will stop spinning. Wait, it will it will metaphorically stop spinning, or it will actually stop so spinning. So it, it the, the instrument measures what the eye is doing and your your level of concentration mm-hmm. because of the eye brain connections measuring. And as your concentration improves, mm-hmm. the spinning donut will slow down and stop. It will literally stop yeah it's a computer program so the okay the, the, the feedback sound goes into the microphone of the computer okay and that okay. and that controls the the spinning rate of the donut okay and i've noticed that once people can sustain the stop position of the donut for 15 20 seconds or more they will get a facial flush and some of them will actually report a slight adrenaline rush. Just a complete relaxation. One of the patients last week, um, he said that he felt his whole face relax and wanted me to take a picture of his face. Mm -hmm. He just felt everything just open up. Did you you notice a difference in his face when you looked at him? Yeah. Yeah. It, it happened once before when I took a picture. He brought it home, showed it to his wife, and says, Is that you? He was so relaxed. And, you know, we talk about 
so talk, so we talk about words we have words that sometimes mean two things um but actually I, i'd be interested to see if they mean the, the same thing so when we talk about focusing so like someone can focus their eye does that is that also related to the the process the fun you know the process of focusing on say a task in life like concentration yeah this is a very good question i'll explain it this way okay people who are nearsighted tend to dominate their visual attention in the center Mm -hmm. and there's actually two pathways in the vision system and the brain one is for central vision and one is for peripheral vision Mm -hmm. and people who are nearsighted tend to dominate their attention in the center so they're not using the other channel. Mm-hmm. So they become what I term a central serial, S-E-R-I-A-L, central serial processor. And the example is that if you have a, a four-lane highway mm-hmm. and, pe- and people are going, we'll say, 100 kilometers per hour, and three of the lanes get blocked, and there's only one lane, it slows down disproportionate to the reduction in lanes. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when someone is a serial processor, that they're only, they're only able to process a certain limited amount of information. So many patients who are nearsighted can only do one thing at a time. If you ask them to do something else while they're doing one thing, they actually become very upset. Conversely, people who are farsighted and and people who have uh, learning problems, they're stuck in the periphery. They can't come into the center. They're not coming into the center. They're processing out here, outside. So they're easily distracted and they they have trouble getting one thought uh, consistent because everything's gone through their mind. Now, when we blend them, in the alpha brainwave state, which is the Zen meditative state, when we blend them, then that's parallel processing. That's like when all the lanes on the highway are open and the cars can go very fast. Mm-hmm. So you're processing much, much more information per unit time than a serial process. And that's the ultimate goal of the training is to get people to be able to process as much information as possible. And the most Dramatic example is when I work with athletes that we can get them to see things in slow motion. Wow, in slow motion. In in their periphery or their entire uh, entire vision. Entire vision. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing I did in, in undergraduate school was I pole vaulted. Pole vaulted. Yeah. Yeah. Now in those days the pole didn't bend. Oh Jesus. So it just went straight up. You're just like, you're just like doing this. And then I had to do a handstand on top and then push myself up off the the pole and go over the the bar and land in a pit of sawdust and sand that didn't have. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And uh, I was the only one in the college who could do it. Okay. And I just thought it was fun. Yeah, it sounds like good fun. <laughs> and because I was a fast runner, I could, you know, I could get the 
I could mm-hmm. do it. <clears throat> and from wrestling, I knew how to fall. So I did that. I had no anxiety about it, just the opposite. It was just something, a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. And it all happened in slow motion when I would do it. Right. When I would get the same feeling, when I was doing my studies, I could speed read and I had a photographic memory. Okay. So after, so I, I, I worked on that. And after a while, I could go in and take any test and, and get an A on it because I had all the notes photographed in my head. Oh my God. That explains all of the degrees. I took me, it took me about three minutes in the beginning of this podcast just to read out your education portfolio. Yeah, for, in, in fact, at, for my PhD, um, at, the, at the end of each of the first classes for each course, I went over to the professor and asked him if he could give me some extra work to do was any test that you give me, I'm going to get an A. <sighs> you do <And> very well. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> wow. That, uh, that makes me immensely jealous. I wish I had something like that. I can't even remember. I can't even remember the year I was born sometimes. I'm a terrible one for, for, for numbers. That's so... so. Some of it is genetic because my, my brother and my niece also well, have photographic memory. Mm. And what? And just quickly, do you know, do you know what what causes? How does someone have photographic memory? Is it related you, to your you, eyesight? You go, you, you go into this very enhanced alpha state, like a, a, a profound Zen meditation. Okay. Just your whole your whole body is relaxed, and and you just take in everything all at once, as a feeling, not necessary as an intellectual, analytical event. But you just take it all in and you feel what the words are saying. Wow. And then you have an image of those words mm-hmm. with that feeling. Right. So this is all very connected. Like it's 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 really connected to what was the to- what was the type of yoga or meditation you min- min- mentioned in the beginning? Zen. Zen. But you'd call it something else, no? Zen something? Was there a second word? An enhanced alpha brainwave state. No, I thought there was a specific type of Zen meditation yoga, but it's just Zen Zen meditation. Okay, you know what? You you have convinced me more than anyone I've ever met to do meditation. Like that sounds absolutely amazing. When you, you put it to, like you, that, to slow to, down the world, you have to close, clear your mind of everything, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. think of anything. Just mm-hmm. clear your mind and keep it clear. Yeah. It takes see what happens when you do the biofeedback training. As soon as your mind is distracted, the biofeedback sound will go down and the donut starts spinning faster. Right. Yeah. 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 So you just kind so of people, like empty. people could learn how to do it very quickly, and and they will love it. It just it's just fun. It's just fun. Yeah, I saw that on your site that it's like it's a fun thing to learn how to do. Oh, wow. I could talk to you more about all of these things. I think that is just so enlightening. We've been we've been here probably nearly 80 minutes now, so uh, we might wrap it up there. Um, but okay. thank, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Joseph Trackman, thank you from C- living in Seattle, but from New York. Is Brooklyn. that correct? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Excuse me. <laughs> Not New York. Brooklyn. Um, and... 
and people can find you. You have a website. Um, it's acomotrack.com, A-C-C-O-M-M-O-T-R-A-C.com. And, and they can go to my YouTube channel that has the more recent information. Just put recent. my just put my name in. Dr. Joseph Trachtman and um, find out more about you and your work. And um, yeah, it was absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and for giving your time. Thank and, you for all the good questions. <laughs> well, I hope they were interesting. You probably, you probably, they were good because you probably have answered all of these so many times again. And it, no, it really intrigued me because I'm on my own specific journey of healing and, and uh, dealing with PTSD. So it just, I, I couldn't like, you know, you know, when you just have these mad thoughts and then you put them into Google and you realize that other people have also had these mad thoughts and not only had they've had mad thoughts, but they've done reams of research on it that you can then go find out if it's if um, how to solve the problem or whatever. So um, thank you for your work. And um, I look forward to reading and, and listen, listening and, and learning more about it. If I'm ever in Seattle. I will, I will come and I will get this. Oh, well, maybe I could get it sorted. I'd love to. You, this, listen, this is a better, I don't know how much you charge. People can find that on, on their own. But if people, would you recommend people go to you or get laser eye surgery? Laser eye surgery, definitely not. Right. Oh, that's, I thought you were going to say, yeah, thank you. People definitely have said, well, yeah, what is your opinion on that? What happens is that years later, because the cornea has been weakened, it starts to become more curved and all kinds of problems will uh, have occurred. Thank you. Thank you. Because you know what? People have just, said. Just to give myself a plug, that yes. we do sell our biofeedback trainer. Mm, okay. For home use. Okay. Is there, do you want to give a price point or do you want to let people find out through your, your, they can, they can contact me. You can the, contact the problem you. is the only problem is right now we don't have CE certification, so we can't okay. send it to EU countries, but if you're not in an EU country or you know someone who's not in an EU country who can get it to you, then we could send it to you. And, and then we give a zoom training sessions mm. once they have it. Okay. Okay, interesting. No, it's, I'm so glad I asked you that question there right at the end because people say to me all the time, why don't you get laser eye surgery? And I said, do you know what they do to your eye? I'm sorry, are you mad? Are you mad that you let someone cut your eye open? And I was like, not at all. I don't care if my glasses cost me money. I like my glasses, actually. I really like wearing glasses. I was like, it's madness. I just, I don't trust it. I don't think that when anyone is offering you a solution that they cut open your eyeball. I'm sorry. No, I, I'm not so, doing it. Just to, I had one patient in particular. She had done both eyes. Yeah. And they, they made a mistake and they put the center of one eye one place oh. and the center in the other and she saw double like this way. Oh my when God. When I saw it. And we were able to train her back. But they left her like this. Jesus. Oh, the horror. The horror.
Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank and, you. Um, if ever you would like to do it again, or if there's something else you'd like to keep a new study from yet or a new paper, we'd love to hear you back from you again, and we'd love to have another conversation. So okay. the door is always open. Thank you thank very you much. So much. Okay. See you soon. Bye bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.